Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Katz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, it's time for a Sound Opinions classic album dissection, the Ramones' Rocket to Russia. We're going to be talking with the only surviving original member of the Ramones, Tommy Ramone. Plus, we'll review the new album from alt-country chanteuse Lucinda Williams. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. And the Grammy for Best Country Album goes to Taking the Long Way Home, Dixie Chicks. Well, to quote the great Simpsons, <laughs> Greg, that's Natalie Maines, the one and only the lead vocalist of the Dixie Chicks, they had a big night at the Grammys last week. We're going to try to offer some perspective on the Grammys. You may think it's old news. Neither of us predicted the Dixie Chicks win, although I think we should have because... Well, I did. I have to say I predicted album of the year, but what not I don't sweep. think anybody saw coming was no. a sweep. Not, not only for the five awards that they were nominated for, but the big three, album of the year, song of the year, record of the year. That means, according to the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, 16,000 professionals who work in the music industry, this was far and away the best music created in 2006. There was nothing even close because they gave them the three big awards. Well, you're hitting at the heart of why we care about the Grammys, why we watch it every year, and why we pull out what's left of our hair when we watch the (laughs) damn thing. You know, the Grammys have traditionally been out of step with popular culture. I like the idea of coming up with a list saying for future generation, what was the most exciting music in terms of making news, in terms of stretching the art form of 2006? What can we look back to remember that year by? Now, the Grammys were established in 1958 by the old guard of the music industry, a group led by Frank Sinatra (laughs) and Mitch Miller of Sing Along with Mitch fame. And herein lies the problem, because the first year in 58, you had some of the best recordings in rock and roll history made that year. Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Richie Valens, right? And who was the big winner in year one of the Grammys? Do you remember? No. Domenico Mugdugno. Thanks for looking that up. That's right. 1965. (laughs) A little album called Help and the the British Invasion, the Beatles. The Beatles Uh. were nominated. You know who won in 65? The Anita Kerr singers, We Dig Mancini. You know, the Grammys are fond of saying and justifying their importance that when when artists die, big artists die, the only awards that are ever mentioned in their obituaries are they were Grammy Award winners. I don't know if that's something to be proud of. And it's all often that they don't win for the best awards. Eric Clapton, you know, was honored years after his best work. All through the 60s, there were no awards given to Dylan or the Rolling Stones. It's absurd. 
Yeah, they do catch up kind of late. Although I have to say, in recent years, they've hit it pretty well. Uh, Outcast won when it should have won. Lauren Hill won when she should have won. They did give Dylan a very late award, but he was a deserving winner when he the year that he won. So they are more hits than misses lately. This year, though, Jim, I think is an interesting case because 20 years from now, people are going to look back on 2006 and they're going to look at that Grammy list and they go, wow, the Dixie Chicks just blew everybody out of the water. They made by far the best music of that year. Is that what they're really saying here? I think there's a subtext yes. to this vote last week. We talked a lot about the Dixie Chicks last year in the news segment of this show and we reviewed the album. Both of us liked it, as I recall, right? Yes. Yeah, that's but not, not that much. <laughs> not that much. No, and that's not why they were honored. I, I You know, we should have predicted the sweep because this is an old line liberal left wing mm-hmm. Hollywood reaction to the fact that the Dixie Chicks were majorly dissed. They're, they're still shunned by a large part of corporate country radio. They had to cancel half of their tour in the red states where fans still are reacting to the statement that Natalie Maines made on stage four years ago now mm-hmm. in London that she was ashamed to be from Texas, which was where President Bush was from. Yes. The fact that they are basically being shunned by Nashville, the country establishment, by the Bible Belt. This was Los Angeles saying, come here, we embrace you, we yeah. love you, you're one of us now. <laughs> and, and, and it sort of ties in with this album. They made it with Rick Rubin out in L.A. They went for more of a pop sound. They wrote more of their original songs on this record than they ever have. They have made the transition from a country act to a pop act. And I think what we're seeing, when people do look back on 2006, they're going to see the Dixie Chicks making this transition from this 30 million selling, wholesome, mainstream country act into a pop act that could possibly have some life to it. I think by the time we're through this 2 million selling album, the sales of this will double in the next six months. The because there will be uh, a yeah. new audience discovering the this The Grammys band. are always good for a boost the week after the show, big boost for the top winners. I think we'll see that on the Dixie Chicks, and I think it's going to be a rock audience. You're right. What a strange sight it was. And hello, Minneapolis. You can really react to this. <laughs> to see the Dixie Chicks looking, as you said in your, uh, your newspaper review, like cover models from a Roxy Music album, yeah. standing there with Dan Wilson of Semisonic and Trip Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, this underground <laughs> musician from the rock world who became you know, fairly minor hit during the alternative era. He wrote, I'm not ready to make nice with them. I mean, weird. Yes, very weird. We contrast this every year, Jim, with the uh, the critics' polls that come out around this time of year or even earlier. There were several of them this year that we want to reference. The most famous one, the longest-lasting one, is the Paz and Jop poll in the Village Voice. This year they polled about 500 critics nationwide. There was a competing poll online led by the Idolater.com website. They polled another 500 critics. If you compare to what the critics said was the best music in 2006 to what the Grammy said was the best music in 2006, there's a huge disconnect there this year. Whereas in previous years we have seen some uh, convergence with Dylan and Outkast and Lauryn Hill, artists like that. This year not as... uh, much in sync. Well, you and I have always maintained, though, that if we were going to put in a time capsule the list representative of the music of any given year, it would not be the Grammys. It would be the Paz and Job poll that the Village Voice conducts. It has problems. It has flaws. But it's thorough. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a rock critic and I always <laughs> voted until this year. You know, I'm saying it because that's the music that generally stands the test of time, even when I haven't agreed with most of their top ten. Yeah, what did the year sound like? I think you nailed it on the head uh, a few minutes ago when you talked about that before the show. You know, what was the sound of 2006? And the records that overlapped in these polls, we saw TV on the radio, Gnarls Barkley, the Dylan record, records which were not recognized in general by the Grammys. Uh, Gnarls Barkley won a minor award 
best alternative rock record, but were shut out in the big categories. TV on the radio, not even nominated no. for an award. Bob Dylan, not nominated for one of the big prizes. He did win best contemporary folk <laughs> record, <laughs> uh, even though it's a full-on electric record. Yeah. So there was a disconnect there. But this is the music, I think, that, that spoke loudest to the critics, and it didn't make any kind of impression at all at the Grammys. What was the Idolater top uh, winner? Uh, topping the Idolater poll was TV on the radio. They came in second in the, in the Paz and Job poll. So the critics liked that TV on the radio record. Uh, the mm-hmm. Dylan record topped the Paz and Job poll. So, you know, you saw the critics coming down heavily in favor of those two records, and, and they did not make much of an impression at the Grammy Awards. We should add here neither of those records. Well, TV on the radio was your number one, right? Yeah, TV on the radio was my number one. It didn't even make your top 70, as I recall, Jim. Uh, no, it didn't. No, <laughs> no. I, I went with uh, Art Brute and Lily Allen. And again, there's two more artists we didn't see any of uh, no. this year. And I think that the Grammys have fallen a, a lot behind. Uh, first of all, their their deadlines are... Ridiculous. Uh, they're talking about the end of September from the previous year to the beginning of October the following year. So they miss, they cut off the last three months of the calendar year. And what? artists like Lily Allen, who made a huge impression right. in 2006 through her internet connections, she won't even be able to be recognized by the Grammys until next year. By then, who knows you know, what people are going to think of Lily I, Allen. I want to underscore that. In the era of paper ballots, there might have made some sense for the Grammys defining the year 2006 as September 2005 to October 2006 uh, because it took a long time to tabulate paper ballots. Recording Academy, little memo. There's this thing now called the Internet. You can visit your doctor. You can buy car insurance. You can vote in some places online instantly. Why is the Grammy organization still lagging so far behind? It makes no sense whatsoever, especially when increasingly the last 10 years, the model for the big record companies has been you save your powerhouse blockbusters for that period starting around Halloween and running through Thanksgiving. Absolutely. I I think symbolic of that, Jim, was the fact that their big coup, their the great white whale that they netted for the performance last week was the reunion of the police. Ladies and gentlemen, we are the police and we're back! Yeah. Sting, Andy Summers, Stuart Copeland performing together for the first time in years. They have not toured since the early 80s. 84. And now they've announced this major tour. And, and here we are, essentially a nostalgia act. Uh, no new record in the pipeline. They're out there to perform their greatest hits and basically a giant cash grab at the stadiums of America coming up. you ain't kidding. Uh, They're talking about 80 shows. Fenway Park in Boston, Wrigley Field in Chicago most likely, a couple of nights at Madison Square Garden in New York. They're talking about a uh, tiered pricing structure of $50 for the cheapest. Now, in an outdoor arena like Wrigley or Fenway, you're going to be a city block away. Yes. That's 50 bucks. 90 bucks to be a little closer, maybe the same area code, 225 Yeah, for most of the best tickets. That's outrageous. They're going to play 80 shows, 24 cities in, in uh, North America, but they're also going to do Mexico, South America, Japan, maybe even Australia and New Zealand. This is insane. They couldn't even look at each other or stand within 20 feet of each other on stage. Did you notice this? <laughs> yeah. What did we think of the police uh, on the ground? And they were never the most loving bunch of guys well, they in the first place. They despised each other. And, Remember Andy yeah. Summers sitting here? 
But you know, at the same time, I, I think it's it's one of those things where those hits, those songs, have stood the test of time. I mean, God knows, Sting has been playing them on his solo tours. Well, for the last this is what years. I'm concerned about because the version of Roxanne that the Police did on the <laughs> Grammys was a Sting solo version. Mm-hmm. We've both seen him play it any number of times in his solo concert. Yeah, complete with the breakdown that used to be like a dub reggae interlude became this jazz fusion thing. Right, bad sign. Also a very bad sign, Sting was about a step and a half below the register he used to have, mm-hmm. and the Roxanne chorus was on backing tape. Uh, one more thing we have to talk about with the Grammys. I thought the thing that was most despicable about the 2006 Grammys, 49th Annual Awards, was this business of last year they moved from Sunday night, where they'd always been, to Wednesday. And it was a dumb move because they put them in competition with American Idol. Huh. They were trounced soundly. Twice as many people watched American Idol as watched the Grammys. And you know, then they, they skulked back to Sunday and they tried to take some of that Idol silliness with them. Doing this Grammy moment contest, now again, the Recording Academy allegedly honors excellence and innovation in the recording arts and sciences. But here they had this contest where, guess what? The <laughs> nominees of the, the best unheard singer in America, the best unknown up-and-coming singer who uh, people voted for online in order to give them a slot to sing with Justin Timberlake, they all happen to be anorexic, beautiful, thin model women. Gee, how did that work? There's no, no, no like, talented, ugly man, you know? I mean, it, how, how did this come out? And, and it pandered right into that thing. And here... You know, she got significant airtime, the winner, Yeah, with Justin Timberlake. And the thing that's incredibly insulting, Greg, is that there were 108 Grammy categories. Granted, many of them are silly. But 97 of those 108 awards were handed out before the show even started. Right. Only a handful got airtime. Then they give this big showcase to somebody nobody's ever heard of. Yeah, it was silly because here you have Ornette Coleman, who finally got some face time on uh, national television. Yeah. I mean, one of the great musical uh, innovators of the 20th century. And he's, like, reading the names of these nominees for Best New Artist. And you've got to wonder, what is Ornette Coleman thinking right now? <laughs> what is he thinking right now? Not to mention the fact that they don't even let the guy play, but yeah. they let this Robin Troop this who nobody. has done nothing. Nobody. You know, do a bad American Idol runners-up imitation with, with Justin Timberlake and T.I. I mean, I thought it was insulting to uh, Ornette. Uh, they also had Prince in the house, and they didn't let him perform either. I mean, I right. thought the Super Bowl performance was terrific, and maybe they thought, well, it's too much Prince. But listen, there was a James Brown tribute going on. When you have Prince <laughs> in the house and you're paying tribute to James Brown, let Prince perform. It, you're giving Prince more credit than do, though. I mean, he, you know, he could have come up and done a Foo Fighters song. It might not have been <laughs> yeah, a good yeah, thing. That's right. Can you judge the political candidate by the song? Uh, Jim, what would you make of a political candidate who used that song, U2's City of Blinding Lights, as their entrance music for their big coming out party for the presidential race of 2008? Well, I think it's problematic because the, the superficial reading of the song is one of optimism and, you know, the city of the blinding lights and time won't take the boy out of this man. But I really think it's a stupid celebrity song about paparazzi. <laughs> That's what I really think that Bono is singing about in there. So, so you think that... That, 
uh, Barack Obama when he uh, used that song as part of his presentation in Springfield last weekend, making the announcement that he was uh, throwing his hat in the ring? Or do you think that he actually didn't listen to this song when he chose it? Look, there's no two ways about it. Barack is an inspirational figure. I think he should have chosen that Neil Young song where he gets (laughs) name-checked, which would have been a much better choice. I think he needs a, uh, you know, it would be a violation of our journalistic ethical practices for us to advise him or any yes. candidate, but I, I, you know, I think we could come up with a better list of songs for him than he, you, he too. Needs, he needs to visit the Sound Opinions Rock Doctors, I think. Uh, <laughs> we, we have a, a segment with uh, Barack Obama. Yeah, Give him some right. music. And uh, for that matter, I think we can help some of these other uh, Democratic candidates at the uh, Democratic National Committee winter meeting. It was interesting to see what songs this is a great the candidates story. chose as their entrance and exit music. We had Senator Chris Dodd with Get Ready by the Temptations, General Wesley Clark with the Tom Petty song Won't Back Down, but as performed by Johnny Cash. Uh, Dennis Kucinich, disappointing, not going real deep here. America the Beautiful? Uh, Okay, I mean, very obvious, and you can't go wrong, right? But come on. Now, Senator Hillary Clinton, based on her song choice, has got my (laughs) vote. Because I, like her, once thought these guys were really hot stuff. That was uh, Jesus Jones right here, right now. I look back on on that review that I wrote uh, 15 years ago and go, man... You, you that thought one. they were but, the second coming. But Hillary has uh, still has a sweet spot for Jesus Jones, it appears, right uh, here, right oh now. Oh, my God. Well, wow. Senator Joe Biden of Delaware, who I thought melted down on, on his very <laughs> announcement speech, is is going with John Fogarty's center field. Oh, put me in, coach. I'm, I'm ready, ready to, to play. Uh. <laughs> you know, of oh. all the great John Fogarty songs, and you picked that one? Now, Greg, the Republicans have not yet announced their campaign theme songs. A uh, few Republicans have actually announced that they're running. But because they control the FCC and they, we have to give equal time to both parties, uh, I thought we could help make some suggestions for some of the front runners in the Republican Party. Senator John McCain, possible candidate for the Republican Party, although he could just as well go with the Democratic That's Party. Right. You never know with him. Now, this is an obscure one, but his daughter, Sid McCain, was a longtime publicist, record company publicist, mm-hmm. who, whose favorite band... And she worked with them intensely, was spiritualized. Yeah. I think that the senator ought to go with, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we are floating in space. Yeah. <laughs> How cool would that be? Rudy Giuliani, the uh, mayor of New York City, is going to run. Uh, here's here's another obscure one, but it's a classic, right? Uh, the the underground New York dance art rock band Chick Chick Chick. <laughs> That's the three exclamation yes. uh, points band. Me and Giuliani down by the schoolyard. <laughs> This one's a little more obscure. Senator Sam Brownback, the guy from Kansas, who's slightly to the right of Attila the Hun. I want to recommend that he go with Judas Priest. You've got another thing coming. There may be a little problem there, though, because the senator has some uh, uh, serious issues with gay marriage and, and gay rights. And, you know, and of course, Rob Halford of Judas Priest. Yeah. But, but, you know, but it's a good song. Go for it. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we begin our classic album dissection of the Ramones' punk classic, Rocket to Russia. Later on, a review of the new album from Lucinda Williams.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Teenage Lobotomy by the Ramones. What a song. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. From time to time here on Sound Opinions, we do these classic album dissections. We dive deep into the history of a record that we think is one for the all-time ages. In appreciating the third album by the Ramones, Rocket to Russia, one of the things you have to understand right off the top is what a breath of fresh air (laughs) something like that song, Teenage Lobotomy, was in the mid 70s. 77 is when this record came out. It's really the best of the Ramones' early records, although we'll talk about where they were in their career in a second. Uh, but, But, you know, Genesis, yes, James Taylor, Loggins and Messina, you know, that stuff was what was ruling the airwaves. There was a real lack of energy in rock and roll. There was no excitement. There was no fun. There was no spirit. A lot of critics, some people in the music industry, some musicians thought, how did rock and roll get away from Chuck Berry in the 50s and the British invasion and the Beach Boys and come to be mired down in these tales of topographic oceans, this progressive rock flatulence? What happened to rock and roll? <laughs> I think Seymour Stein at Sire Records was asking that same question because he signed the Ramones after seeing them at CBGB's, the infamous Lower East Side Club. And they put out their debut record in April of 1976, and it was it was that breath of fresh air. It was the first real big salvo in the punk rock movement in the United States. They toured England for the first time a few months later. In fact, July 4th, 1976, first show in London, where the Sex Pistols were there, the future members of The Clash were there, the Damned were there, and they go, right. oh my God, we have just seen our future. The flip side <laughs> of the British invasion. It was it, the American invasion. Exactly. And a couple months, months later, they, they released another record, and then their third album came out in November of 1977. The Ramones always recorded for a major label, and they were under the sponsorship of Seymour Stein who thought they were going to be a hit. So for the third album, he really invested in them. First album was made for six grand. Album number three, Rocket to Russia, they spent $25,000 and went to a studio in midtown Manhattan called Media Sound in the middle of the summer to record this record. Exactly. You had these four guys from the far, far suburbs of New York City, Forest Hills, blue-collar guys, getting together in a band essentially with the idea to restore some of what they loved and weren't hearing in in rock and roll anymore. They loved that early bro 
real building stuff, the real building pop songs of Carole King, the Phil Spector sound of the early 60s, the craft of those songs, the, the catchy, undeniable craft of Beach Boys songs. They weren't hearing any of this on the radio anymore, and they wanted to make some songs in their own image. The, the fact is that it had been 15 years since, though, and they'd updated the sound quite a bit. I mean, what I think they did, Jim, that was innovative was to take that early 60s sound that they loved so much, that bubblegum and that pop sound, and, and take all the fat out of it and just turn it into the speed train, uh, rev it up by about you know 150 miles an hour and turn it into these rush of pop songs. So instead of a two and a half or three minute song, you would get a minute long or a minute and a half long song exactly. that just blew the doors off. Exactly. Now, it's easy to forget at this point in time where you know you have a fallout boy and a Blink uh, 182 and some 41 in, in every shopping mall in America, how revolutionary this was at the time. There was no punk rock. There was no phrase. Punk was somebody who was a, uh, a turning homosexual tricks, okay? <laughs> the Ramones took this name and they decided to wear it as a badge of pride and, and to dress like idiots from the street, but they weren't. You know, they, they really were. Only D.D., uh, Douglas Colvin, the bass player, he was the real deal. He was the guy who was actually sniffing glue. <laughs> uh, but Jeff Hyman, who would become Joey Ramone, was a, was a smart, educated guy. John Cummings was a street smart guy, loved baseball. And then you had Greg Tommy Ramone, better known to his parents anyway as Tomas Erdelai, who was born in Budapest, not even an American, you know, immigrated to the U.S. Uh, and, and key part in, in forming one of the iconic American bands. He was a little older than the other guys. He'd been a studio intern when Jimi Hendrix was recording Band of Gypsies. He knew the music industry, and he had this vision for a band. Here's one of the songs he co-wrote, Cretan Hop, classic from Rocket to Russia. Forgotten Ramon uh, had a career after the Ramones went on to produce the replacements, for goodness sake, uh, but also co-produced Rocket to Russia. It's sad, Greg. He's the only surviving member of that original Ramones lineup. We wanted to talk to him about making Rocket to Russia, and we started out by asking him about how he met his bandmates. I met John in high school, cafeteria, the first day of high school, and we bonded right away through music. He was a really witty, funny guy, and uh, Dee Dee moved into the neighborhood like about a year or two later, and uh, Joey I knew, actually I met Joey before I met Johnny at some uh, weird jam session where he was playing a snare drum, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this was when I was about 15, 16, and uh, he was like 14, and he was just hitting the snare drum, looking really strange. <laughs> <laughs> he, he always did. <laughs> Started out as a Ramones drummer. Exactly. I was going to say that. That's where the band started. Joey, as the drummer of the band, and you were going to manage the band, as I understand, right, Tommy? Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, I was originally the manager. Uh, they, they were sort of a concept of mine. I mean, I had seen the New York Dolls, and uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed them. I, I saw that what they were doing, you know, wasn't very virtuosic, but they were like the most exciting band I'd seen in a long time. And uh, I just thought about, well, I know these guys in Forest Hills. If if I could get them together, they might be interesting. And uh, so I encouraged them to get some instruments and do that. 
And so at first rehearsal, I was like, uh, I didn't know what to expect. I, I knew it would be colorful and interesting. And But they showed up with these like really strange, bizarre songs. <laughs> and I said, wow, we got a little extra here. The, these guys are coming up with these very unique songs. So things got going pretty quickly, you know, right from the start. So the satirical take on suburban life and uh, the state of the, the family and drugs and street culture, this was all in in terms of the, the subject matter, was there from the start. Yeah, they came in with lots of baggage. Before we get to some of the songs, I want to ask you in particular about being a, a drummer. I'm a drummer myself, and I think the Ramones never get enough credit for their influence in rock on drumming because it was so simple and yet uh, revolutionary. The tempos are extraordinary. The 16th notes on the hi-hat. Where, where did that revved up energy come from? Was it a natural expression? or maybe there, there was really no rhythm like that, and today it's ubiquitous, so I think we take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Partially, it, it comes down to Johnny, who wanted to be a baseball player. When he used to pitch stickball with us, he would throw fastballs. So <laughs> yeah. he was a big fastball pitcher. So when he started playing guitar, his virtuosity became speed. Uh, Joey was playing drums at first, was trying to keep up with that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his drums would fall apart after every song, literally. Yeah. <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. So we'd have to pick up the pieces after every song. <laughs> when I became the drummer, I never played drums before. I was a guitar player. Really? So you never, you'd never sat down beside No, no. I never played drums uh, ever before that. But I knew what uh, I wanted to hear, which I couldn't get other drummers to play. Mm. So right away, I pretty much clicked in with... Uh, something that uh, matched Johnny's forward drive. And a lot of the things I was doing was uh, probably backwards to what a uh, normal drummer would do, like on cymbal crashes and things like that. I would mm. sometimes do cymbal crashes where opposite of where somebody else would do it. I just wanted to, uh, to play what I heard in my head. Tommy, we want to ask you about Rocket to Russia. Your third album came out in 1977. You were the co-producer. Um, was there a sense that this was the Ramones moment, that this was the time that you were going to break into the top ten, that you were actually going to have singles on the on the commercial radio airwaves? Yeah. Well, that record is uh, the Ramones at, at their peak. By that time, we were really playing well and fluidly. Uh, we had a lot of confidence. We thought that we were going to make it because we knew we were good. We were getting good reviews and everything, and we had the momentum. And we were, you know, this was inspiring us to write great songs, so we were writing some good songs, and... We had a, a little more money, thus a little more time in the studio. And so uh, all these things came together. Uh, had you toured much? Yeah, point? we were touring constantly. We had been to England uh, for the first time, uh, for, uh, for sure. So we could really play well then. As far as the studio is concerned, it was great because uh, that was just me and uh, my co-producers and the en- an engineer, you mm-hmm. know. And the Ramones would come in and do the basic tracks and then Dee Dee and Johnny would leave. <laughs> and then Joey would, we would do Joey's vocals, and then he would leave, and then boom. So for me, this was uh, just ecstasy because <laughs> uh, we were just there to create. I mean, it was still a relatively small budget, so we had to really work hard and fast. But uh, it was uh, one of the greatest times of um, you know my life uh, to be able to work on that record. We knew that, wow, you know, this thing is really great. And like I said, we thought that this record was going to break. Ed Stasium, who was the engineer on the record at the time, uh, he was quoted as saying that Johnny showed up on the first day of recording 
with the Sex Pistols single, God Save the Queen. And he announced to everyone, these guys ripped us off and I want to sound better than this. <laughs> so it was the, the punk thing which was just starting to bubble under in England, in many ways inspired by the Ramones tour of the previous summer. Was that reflecting back on what you were trying to do in the studio at all, or were there any other kind of sounds in the air at the time that were kind of in your head at the time that you wanted to do better than, or...? Well, naturally, we were, you know, we were very competitive, and uh, we liked that uh, record, and uh, we saw that they were t- taking what we were doing, and uh, they were going into really high-priced studios with uh, high, high-priced people. They spent a lot of money. They spent yeah. a lot of money, and, and they got to, you know... But we listen to it and we say, well, hey, we got to beat this thing. Production starts to become interesting on Rocket to Russia. You know, Sheen is a punk rocker, has sleigh bells, right? You know, it's beautiful. It's a Phil Spector touch, but three times as fast. You know, I'm, I'm kind of hung up and preoccupied with, with being tasteful. Mm. I mean, any, anything uh, that we incorporated had to be... It had to work with the song, and uh, we were always adding those little little touches, even in, in the first record, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which we did in like two hours. <laughs> but um, a lot of that stuff uh, stuff is almost subliminal; you can barely hear it, and, and just in the background, just to add a little little color, a little a little flavor, sometimes a little humor. You mm. took out all the fat. I think there was just no <laughs> filler. I mean, it's like every note, every drum beat. Every word had to mean something, had to count. Yeah, we did a lot of editing out of things that weren't necessary or weren't cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there isn't a song on, on the album that even hits three minutes. We didn't want it to go on any longer than it had to. <laughs> <laughs> say what you got to say <laughs> and get out of the way. Get out. Uh, did you know Sheena is a punk rocker was a great song? I mean, it, to me, I, I've always said if we if we had to choose one song to put in a, in a time capsule, shoot into space, explain to an alien civilization what is rock and roll, it is. It is that song. Yeah, Seymour uh, Stein especially loved that song, and uh, he sent us into the studio just to record that one song. Mm. Yeah, it's a great song. Joey was brilliant at coming up with uh, these sort of unique, very melodic pop songs. Uh, he was amazingly talented uh, with that. I think we were a little ahead of our times too, though. We were just a, as good as Sheena's a punk rocker is. It's still maybe a bit too quirky, you know. It didn't seem that way to us. But uh, we were just a little bit ahead of our times, a little over people's heads, I think. And uh, uh, so, who knows? Yeah. I noticed there was another apocal event on Rocket to Russia in terms of Ramon's lore, and that was a guitar solo by Johnny Ramon on uh, Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. There was actually a few bars there where you could say, well, that's kind of a guitar solo there. Um, yeah. Was that, how, how did that come about? Did you have to, like, <laughs> I, I went prod Johnny? Stu- I went into the studio and recorded it. <laughs> you played it? Yeah. Did there you really? You oh, yeah. So it's your guitar playing. Okay, <laughs> that, that the secret's out. I don't think we. I don't think I've heard that anywhere before. That's great. You didn't piss him off, did you? Because I wouldn't no, want Johnny mad no, at me. He didn't, no, he didn't mind that. Okay. No. <laughs> now, what made you think, well, a guitar solo would be appropriate on a Ramon song? That was the first time one had been actually played on a Actually, one of my favorite guitar solos was uh, on the Rolling Stones' uh, Tell Me. Mm. It's basically the same solo. Mm -hmm. I just love that solo because it was so simple. It's just arpeggios. And I just love that. And I said, uh, boy, that would be great in this song. That's kind of how that ended up there. (laughs) 
Didi Ramon is counting off a number of the songs, which gives the impression that it's very live. Was that was that in fact how the rhythm tracks were recorded? Didi's counting them off, and boom, the band's off to the races, and that's how it's going to go in the studio. Obviously, the live performances were that like that. When we first started rehearsing, Didi was the lead singer, and he would count off the songs, and we just thought it was it was the most hilarious thing we ever heard. <laughs> You know, and so we would encourage him to do that. So we, you know, we just kept that in. And yes, those uh, the, those counts in the studio are uh, are real. And uh, his counts had absolutely nothing to do with the speed of the songs. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah. absolutely nothing. Uh, he would count off a song, and uh, when he would say the word four, we would just come in at the right speed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Is there a track on, on the record that you really love? You know, one that sort of stands out above the others in terms of your appreciation? Uh, there's so many. This record has so many great songs. Uh, Cretan Hop, Rockaway Beach, We're a Happy Family. Yeah. Is, you know, these are all great songs. Sitting here in Queens, eating refried beans, wearing all the magazines, gulping down Thorazine. <laughs> <laughs> really, really funny, really dark songs. It might be a little bit twisted, for certainly for the tastes of the 1970s. Even it Rock- just shouldn't go this way or something. Yeah. E- even even Rockaway Beach, I heard, was not a pretty place. And yet the, the song was sort of celebrating this kind of idyllic beach, like as if it was in a Beach Boys song, right? Is that is that correct? Yeah. Uh, Didi was the one that would go to the beach. Uh, it, that's his <laughs> song. And I think it's, uh, it's definitely one of my favorites. And I think that definitely should have been a hit if yeah. it wouldn't have been released in the middle of January. <laughs> that too. Well, yeah, but also anybody who lived in New York, I grew up in New York, you know, you go to Rockaway Beach, you're going to get a syringe in your foot or yeah, a razor yeah. blade or, or, or you're going to get mugged. I mean, yeah. it's not a pretty place. It, it wasn't the nicest beach in New <laughs> no, York. No. <laughs> and these guys are singing this yeah. celebratory beach song about it. That's great. Later went on to produce uh, several of their other albums, but this is the last one you played on. Why did you give it up? Well, the thing is, what made those guys so great, what made them so talented and everything, also made them very hard to be with 24 hours, seven days a week, <laughs> and traveling with them in a small van. They were in a, in a world that where it's hard to keep your sanity. There was something very unreal about them, and... Uh, like I said, it made for great creativity, made for great music, great ideas. But uh, I needed to keep uh, a little touch with reality. Tommy Erdelai, Tommy Ramone, one of the greatest drummers for My Money in Rock history and one of the members of the most influential bands ever. Thanks for being here on Sound Opinions. Well, thanks very much. I enjoyed this. Autocup. 
when we come back, Jim and I will pick our favorite songs from Rocket to Russia by the Ramones, and later we'll review the latest album from singer-songwriter Lucinda Williams. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We are dissecting the classic Ramones album, Rocket to Russia, which was released almost 30 years ago. We just spoke with drummer and producer Tommy Ramone about making the record. Now, Greg, it's time for you and I to pick our favorite tracks. You know, Jim, it's almost impossible to pick just one song, but uh, one of the things that uh, Tommy said in our interview with him that uh, sort of inspired my choice for a uh, track to play from this record is the fact that they were ahead of their time and that they were a little darker and a little more subversive than maybe the mainstream was ready for at that particular moment. And I think the Ramones, among the many reasons that they formed the band and played the way they did, was they wanted to write music and write songs and lyrics that addressed issues that weren't being addressed in popular culture at all at the time. For example, in the song, We're a Happy Family, uh, it is a complete repudiation of everything that pop culture was telling us about the American family at Leave that it time. to Beaver and the sitcom family. Yeah, yeah, you know, Ozzie and Harriet, Leave it to Beaver. We had Happy Days as one of the most, as maybe the most popular show in America at the time. In only a couple more years, we would get the Cosby Show. These kind of weirdly idyllic representations of what family life was like. And the Ramones were I didn't grow up in a house like that. Nobody did. And we, we don't know anybody who did. We want to write a song that is more representative yeah. of the kind of families we grew up in. <laughs> and so, yes, they did exaggerate, and they did turn it into a bit of a comic book, but it was hilarious. And it, was, it resonated much more deeply with people who could identify with that more darker aspect of the American family life situation than what they were seeing represented in the larger culture at large. You know, to my mind, it, it was a brilliant pop song as well. You know, we talked to Tommy about what a great drummer he is. I mean, talk about the supersonic metronome. This is like half speed for Tommy and even this song is about <laughs> twice as fast as anything else on American radio at the moment. And then you gotta love the little pop culture reference at the end to Todd Browning's Freaks. The Freaks are taking over and, and, and the Ramones are sort of babbling over the top as the song ends and one of them is saying, where's my safety pin? Where's my safety yeah, pin? And yeah, it was yeah. a, little, a, little, a little shout out to the British punks who were sort of turning punk into a fashion statement at the time. The Ramones Wanted none of that as well. So here it is. Uh, we're a happy family from the Ramones and some things.
We're a happy family. Greg, we should inject here that the Ramones actually were anything but for the last 15 years or so of their uh, career. In fact, Joey and Johnny didn't even talk to each other. Kind of sad what, yeah. they, what they became. But at this point, there was a one-for-all, all-for-one quality. This was the turning point in 77 where maybe punk rock was going to rule the world. That would actually happen, but it would take quite some time. 20 years. Uh, you know, a band <laughs> called Nirvana in 1991, and yeah. as I said earlier, it all eventually leads to Hot Topic in the shopping mall blasting My Chemical Romance, right? Punk is now mainstream, but wasn't in the Ramones' time. What Seymour Stein heard and loved in Sheena is a Punk Rocker are several things. I mean, A, it's a great song. It's a classic melody. It's got that Phil Spector production. Sleigh bells. There's <laughs> sleigh bells in the song. How can you not love that, right? But it's also a statement of we're going to take this word that used to be an insult, punk, and we're going to we're gonna claim it as a point of pride. Sheena is a Punk Rocker. The kids are all hopped up and ready to go. New York City is the place where it's all happening. Those are basically the only words in the song, mm-hmm. and yet you can't forget it. I, I really, I will go to my grave saying, if I had to choose one rock and roll single at two minutes and forty nine seconds to say this is what this music was about, this is the song. It's impossible to hear this and not be moved. If if you hear this and you do not like it, well, you don't like rock and roll. I mean, all due respect, go listen to some jazz or something, okay? But uh, Sheen is a punk rocker is a perfect song, and here it is. Jim, that is a great choice to wrap up our Ramones discussion of Rocket to Russia. I can't think of a better way to end it. Sheena is a punk rocker. I'm not sure anything could possibly follow that. No, I can't. We're going to try to review Lucinda Williams next. I don't know how that works. I feel a little sorry for Lucinda, but she's next. A review of her new album on Sound Opinions.
Lucinda Williams with a song called Are You Alright that kicks off her eighth album in 28 years. Uh, it's called West. And uh, here's a woman who takes her time between records. She does not hurry <laughs> any album that she's ever made, and this is a typical example of that. Uh, it's been several years since her last record, 2003, Four Year Wait. Relatively short in, in terms of Lucinda Williams' time. Born in Louisiana, mostly Texas based these days. Grew up in a um, household in which her father, Miller Williams, was a, a published poet, steeped in uh, rock, country, and folk music. She was a student of Bob Dylan's music. She grew up around people like Towns Van Zant and Guy Clark. Came out with a 1988 breakthrough album with the song Passionate Kisses. It was later covered by Mary Chapin Carpenter and won a Grammy. That was kind of her big coming out party. Uh, ten years later, she released the record Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, uh, won a Grammy for that, won all sorts of critical acclaim. Ever since, she has been in the, uh, you know, she's been one of those top ten percenters. And when, when you talk about singer-songwriters in America, Lucinda Williams' name eventually comes up sooner or later. Time magazine flat out called her the best singer-songwriter of her generation a few years ago. With West, uh, very much in, in the same vein, very literate, folk-based songs, but with a little bit of a twist... Hal Wilner is now the producer of this record. Hal Wilner, best known for producing tribute albums to people like Thelonious Monk and Kurt Vile, and working with artists like Elvis Costello and Lou Reed. So there's a little bit more atmosphere than we normally get in a straight-up alt-country Lucinda Williams record on West. Let's hear a track from it. Uh, this is kind of, for my mind anyway, Jim, the centerpiece of the record. The album sort of builds to this moment in the middle of it. It's a song called Come On, and uh, let's just say that Lucinda is none too pleased <laughs> with a former relationship. Uh, here's Lucinda Williams from the new album West on Sound Opinions. Dude, I'm so over you You don't even have a clue all you did was make me blue You didn't even make me Come on You're so self-involved You're in some kind of fog You hung up on your hog You didn't even make me
you didn't even make me come on. <laughs> Lucinda Williams, the song is Come On from her new album, West. Greg, for my money, that's the fieriest moment on this disc. I do love the sound that Hal Wilner has created here. You have this sense that you are sitting in an empty roadhouse at about four in the morning. Mm-hmm. Each of those instruments is, is uh, you know, crystal clear, and there's an intimacy. You're there with the band, and Lucinda is venting her spleen and expressing her loss. There was an end, a turbulent end, of a romantic relationship and the death of her mother, and those two themes dominate this record. Even though, subsequently, Lucinda has met the man she says is the love of her life, things are looking up, things are rosy for her now, and the title itself, West as in the westward expansion of America, you know, she's talking about new frontiers in the title, but the album for me is a little bit oppressive almost with its downer vibe. Everything is in slow to mid-tempo at best. There's this melancholy that that permeates the disc. You know, we we bumped with Are You Alright? And she keeps asking and asking, Mm -hmm. Are You Alright? Are you all right? It's like, hey, Lucinda, I'm fine. I'm a little worried about you. You know what I mean? It's like, whoa. Yep, yep, exactly. As a mood piece, Wilner does a terrific job. I don't think she's ever sounded quite like she does on this record because of Wilner's production. There is that sense of atmosphere. There's a little bit more orchestration, but it's very, very subtle. Her voice is very much at the at the forefront, but uh, there, there's a mood she's trying to set here, and she does it very well. But I'm with you. There's a little bit too much. Uh, I mean, if you have the razor blade in front of you, really hide yeah. it, because this record is a pretty dark turn, and, and, and that's saying a lot, because this is a woman who knows pain pretty in and she sings about it a lot. But she's I'm, never been easy listening. No, you know, no. Even, even with a breakthrough hit like uh, Car Wheels on the Gravel Road, you know, she's never been cheerful and sunny. No. But this is something else entirely. It's, it's a real downer vibe of a record. And I can't get 100% behind it because of that. Mm-hmm. She does have a great voice, and this album sounds incredible. There are moments like Come On, I think, is the best. But as a whole, I'd have to say it's it's a burn it record. We rate things on buy it, burn it, trash it. I can't get 100% behind it because it is sort of samey and very much a downer. Yeah, I think uh, musically she does need to spend a little bit more time about varying the palette a little bit. I think that song Come On is kind of brilliant. It's a, you know It's one of those moments where the anger really bothers to the surface and the music really expresses that and I wish there were more examples of that on this yeah. record one or two more up-tempo kind of things to vary the emotions a little bit. As a songwriter, she's terrific. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But I think sonically is where she needs to work on her game. And I think with Wilner, she's taking a step in that direction. I think she needs to go further next time. So I'm with you. It's a burn it record for me too, Jim. It's a double burn it, Greg, on Lucinda. What do we have next week on Sound Opinions? Well, next week, Jim, we have the polar opposite of Lucinda Williams in a lot of ways. Uh, another woman who talks about bad relationships, but in a different kind of way. Uh, Lily Allen, we've got her in the studio for an interview and a live performance. She is the MySpace.com queen. Five million downloads. We're going to tell you why you need to listen to her. Absolutely. Uh, i got some thanks to say on the way out, Greg. Sound Opinions, as always, is produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. We get some legal assistance from Dino Armiros. The folks over at American Public Media help bring us nationwide. And Tori Malatia, our uh, executive producer and fearless leader, he was the fourth Dixie Chick, you know, but he got bumped out. I thought he was the fifth Ramon. That too. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. Hey, how you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number, and I'll get back to you. Hey, how are you doing? 
you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name uh, and your number, and I'll get back to you. Hi, this is Walt from uh, Minneapolis, and I just uh, want to tell you what a great show you have. You have, and uh, one of the one of the things that was very interesting to me. I really enjoyed the Shins review. I love that album. I listened to it about 15 times since it came out. I, when I was looking for Greg's review, I noticed that he had also a item about Tokyo Police Club on, on the Tribune site, and I. I I had just come across that band like about two days before that, and so the, the coincidence of that was just tremendous. When you're standing near Tokyo Police Club, when you stand next to me, Tokyo Police Club, when you take the sun out, or ask the people being in love. Thanks a lot for the show. Love it. Bye. Hello, Sound Opinion Guys. This is Jennifer calling from Chicago, Illinois. Um, your show where you talked about the band The Gossip, I really did not appreciate the comment about the lead singer not being a conventional beauty. You guys are judging music, not how people physically look. Take it easy, guys, all right? Know where you're at. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. There's some people that you just can't trust. Some people talk way too record, although it's no park life, it's no modern life, is rubbish. It's a great record, and Damon Albarn is a genius, and I think you're wrong. Alright, that's it. Thanks, guys. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.